Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Warzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Ben Wolf, the founder of Onera and also the Unique Stays guy on Twitter. Ben is an entrepreneur building some amazing hospitality products in the intersection between the short-term rental space and technology-driven hospitality and landscape hotels. He has some unbelievable ideas and is one of the few in the space to actually execute with a major institutional firm. We discuss how Ben got into the business, how he runs his business using technology. We break down the numbers on his best practices for building these experiential landscape style resorts, what he thinks about in an investment, what's important in a location, what are the biggest opportunities he's seeing right now in the industry, how has the modern traveler changed, and how he thinks about servicing this asset class and where it's going into the future. This is an awesome conversation. I really, really, really think this is the future of hospitality. And you should all listen and love and enjoy this podcast and check out some of Ben's properties. Please enjoy my conversation today with Ben Wolf. I wanted to start with the intersection of technology and real estate because you have a tech background. So I wanted to know from you what some of the biggest differences are on the tech side moving into the real estate side. Yeah, sure. So Jake, happy to be on. Thanks a lot for for having me on. I, I want to say, first off, I love the name of your podcast, Masters of Moments. And we can talk more about that later. But we talk a lot about moments of perfection at Onera and in Stayawasi, my marketing and management firm. So yeah, just I think we see a lot of the stuff the same way, probably. But yeah, intersection of tech and real estate and sort of, you know, I went from tech-enabled short-term rental property management to ultimately to, you know, real estate development and hotel development, raised a fund and kind of went into that. So the tech-enabled short-term rental management, we started back in like 2016, 2017, but really got going in 2018. That's when I quit my nine to five software sales job and went in full board to build this hospitality management company. We went from you know eight units at that point that was mostly just lease arbitrage where we were leasing you know apartments in the city and and renting them out on Airbnb, and then had friends of mine who wanted to get involved in it and deploy some capital there and get some units themselves. So we turned into a management company and grew that from eight to 
couple hundred units by the end of 2019. And that's when, right before COVID hit, and we, we were actually, so I built this team. It was tech enabled. We also had a lot of offshore capability. So we built this team out in the Philippines and this offshoring virtual assistant world, I'd been, you know, had been leveraging it for years, got turned onto it actually from my days at McKinsey, had a offshore project there and was like, wow, I mean, the, the labor talent you can get for the cost you can get overseas is pretty incredible. Um, so I started leveraging that basically every job and, and company I started from there. And yeah, at Blink Hospitality, the short-term rental management company, we had like 20 people over there by the end of 2019. We were doing this big offsite, the first one we had done in March of 2020, like the first week. And Manila Airport shut down. You know, they closed the border to the US. It was like, you know, it, it was doomsday. All of our bookings got canceled. So that was a rude awakening to the fragility of this like urban STR business we had created. And it motivated me and accelerated getting into real estate development, raising the fund and really unique stays, experiential hospitality. There's a lot to go into there. One like minutia question right off the top. So of those 20 employees, how many were overseas based and how many were US based? So it was 20 just in the Philippines. So that one market offshore. And then Blink Hospitality was me, my partner, John Cole. And then outside of that, I had hired a, a GM out of Southern California. And she was kind of like GM across the portfolio, helped manage the team. And aside from that, I mean, it was it was all contract labor, which is something that like I tried to do as I started developing hotels. And now we're actually trying to do more FTEs because I mean, margins can get hammered from doing all contract. But for STRs, it was great. We go into a new market. We, we wouldn't need more than five or 10 units for it to make sense. We'd find a good local third-party cleaner. They would help us kind of identify maintenance issues and stuff like that. So we didn't need to hire many full-time employees, which did really help us during COVID. You know, When COVID hit, we, we could go super lean. We negotiated with landlords because their alternative was like people not paying. So, so we were able to kind of figure that piece out. And we just didn't have a big staff. Most of our team was you know, very inexpensive labor overseas. So what pushed you from Blink Hospitality, which I would say is like the generic STR hacking Airbnb model to something very different, which is what you're focusing on now. And that's unique stays. And we'll talk about what a unique stay is. But what pushed you out of what a lot of people are and were doing into something very different? Yeah, so it was a combination of factors for sure. One of them was that just gotten married and we did a honeymoon road trip around the southwestern US in my partner now, Jesse Comley, his RV that he lent me that was in his Joshua Tree compound. And yeah, so we took that RV. We did like a six-week road trip, hit like a dozen national parks. I had been living in Manhattan for you know a dozen years and my wife for 10. And so just re-fell in love with the great outdoors, wide open spaces, but did not fall in love with the friction and issues that pop up with RV life. You know, we were mobile mechanics and having to drive to dealerships to deal with problems. So I was very interested in these wide open spaces, incredible landscapes that the US has to offer, but not the friction of, of RV life. And that was sort of, I think, the, some of the beginnings of wanting to do this personally and, and building a passion around developing stays and experiences that, that cater to that. And as I mentioned, 
my partner, Jesse Comley now, he had a compound in Joshua Tree where he had converted garage, you know, bus, Airstream. He had a retired Cessna airplane that was basically an art sculpture. So like pretty kind of hodgepodgey, wild, but amazing property and in Joshua Tree. So like that kind of funky thing worked well. And it was early there. So he was doing these crazy numbers even before COVID. And so that got me interested. And then the final piece that really pushed me over the edge and was like, all right, we need to really go after this, do something different was COVID. Just seeing the massive acceleration of outdoor hospitality, these more secluded stays. And yeah, it's what really motivated me to do it. I'd wanted to do it for a while, but the urban short-term rentals, we were making good money. You know, the management, it was so it like... I was distracted from what ultimately became the main goal, which was Onera. Is there a flaw with urban short-term rentals or did you just see a bigger opportunity somewhere else? I do think there's a flaw in the sense of, you know, regulatory environment is constantly changing. I think margins have gotten really slashed in places where there isn't heavy regulation because it's pretty easy to get up and running. There's very low barrier to entry. So yeah, I mean, that that company Blink Hospitality still runs. I'm not operationally involved anymore. It's not something that like gets me up in the morning, you know, that that side of the business. And, and I do think that margins are shrinking. Regulation continues to get worse and worse. So for me, it's okay, how do we build hotels? How do we build something that's lasting and sustainable and not just like a short term cash flow grab? But with that said, like Blink Hospitality helped me get Onera up and running. I mean, that Blink was a guarantor on the loan, right? I mean, that allowed me to, you know, to get the financing, some of the financing needed for Onera. And that track record with Blink helped me raise my fund. And, you know, okay, this kid's an operator and, you know, can can execute. And did you unwind Blink or is it still going today? It's still going. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely it's we're not actively trying to grow it massively, right? And I'm not operationally involved. My partner John Cole is kind of, you know, running that at this point. And uh, yeah, it's a small little business and does well, but yeah, it's not where my passion, interest, and what I want to do going forward. Sonder is like the biggest out there. And obviously they've had recently a lot of trouble. They've taken over a bunch of hotels during COVID and hoteliers thought it was a great solution. Their stock price is down. I don't know enough about them, but their thesis was that we could just do it better with tech than a traditional hotel operator. And I kind of thought that was more talk or more bark than bite because a lot of the things that they were touting, we already had in hospitality and we're already doing like keyless entry or text communication, like all this stuff. But I feel like in your space, you were actually able to leverage tech because you were like bootstrapping it and had to be lean. Whereas, you know, if you're funded by venture capital, you don't have to bootstrap it. Maybe you can talk about like your experience versus some of the bigger entrants that you were seeing because there's not cash flowing profitably and you are, or you were. Yeah. And, and look, I think there's a big difference between being lean and skimping. I talk a lot on Twitter and LinkedIn about how I've learned not to skimp. I've gone from being a hustler and, you know, whether it was skimping on hires or skimping on marketing or on building, and that's really bit me. But yeah, certainly been good at lean. A big part of that's offshore. As much as tech, I mean, keyless entry is a part of it. Like you said, I mean, that's been going on for a long time. But our ability to leverage overseas talent, and I try not to skimp there either. Like we used to get very cheap labor. Now we pay probably double the hourly rate, but we get the best of the best over there. 
And it just makes such a difference. I mean, you, you know, running a business, right? Surrounding people with A players makes the whole thing go. Whereas if you have A players and then, you know, some C players, it, it kind of demotivates everybody. And it can be a addition by subtraction to, to get rid of the C players, right? So yeah, on the tech side, I mean, I don't think we're doing anything groundbreaking there. Keyless entry, you know, we have a PMS. It's, it's stuff that, that you're used to seeing and doing. It's more about how do I hire really high quality people and source them and retain them. I think that's where we've been successful and, and overseas is a way to really improve margins. Like our, our team in the Philippines does not only guest communication and experience, you know, they do light troubleshooting in when the guest is in room, they do inquiry prior to, to check in, you know, they help us with some of our accounting and reporting, you know, they do a lot, right? One of them is like my executive assistant who sits underneath me and, and my GM chief of staff. So yeah, we, we try to leverage that as much as possible. I love it. I We've been hiring some people overseas and I actually want to do more of it because I've been really pleased with the quality of the people that we're getting, how smart they are, what they can do. And it's not just really about the dollars and cents. It's about expanding who you can hire in a much broader way beyond the United States. We've been trying to think about ways we can utilize folks in a hotel. The podcast is called Masters of Moments. Our mission is to create moments in the lives of our guests and team members. I think people is an important part of that, like physical connection, people being there. How have you figured out how to do it without people being there over the phone, over text message, email, whatever it is? Yeah, look, my, my business partner's in Lisbon too. We got our whole social media team. And that's one aspect of tech we should talk about is the social media marketing side of things because we've gotten really good at that. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And I think it's where travel is going and where people are looking at places to stay. You talk about the modern traveler on your site too. And, and we, we really, you know, talk about that a lot too and innovating hospitality for the modern traveler. But yeah, in regards to, you know, that culture side of things, I mean, I think that it's culture, you know, mission, vision, values, right? Do you have a vision that is exciting and inspiring? And our vision and is basically innovating hospitality for the modern traveler. And that's something that is shown out in the product that we put together, right? I mean, Onera is an inspiring product for me and I want to continue to push the envelope with that and future products we roll out and the team's excited by that. And we, so it helps us in recruiting and then we try to treat our people right. You know, we give, we, we bonus them, we try to comp them well, you know, we'll pay above market for good people that we can retain and they believe, they believe in the bigger vision. Of course we do like, you know, monthly calls that, you know, morale building. And, and now we have a weekly call with more of the manager level and above where give out like good, good work award for the week and, and do that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I try to be in service of my team as well. So I do a, a weekly update every week of what's going on. And, you know, whether it's podcasts where they can hear about, you know, some of the things that, that I'm thinking about and trying to push the envelope on or new properties we're looking at potential deals coming in. So all these things to kind of keep them abreast and keep them motivated. But how are you creating the magic if they're not physically there? I mean, through, yeah, so it's through sharing media, right? Photos and videos of what's going on, writing, right? Whether that's, you know, Twitter or, you know, weekly update or, you know, Zoom calls. I mean, we, we use Zoom calls fair bit as well, fair bit as well. But from the guest perspective, so how does a guest have a magical moment with you? Oh, okay. Understood. 
Yeah. Like so I know how you're running your business and yeah, I want to yeah. talk about that too, but how yeah. do you create the moment for the guest? Gotcha. On the, so on the, the kind of limited service side of things, like not having a lot of staff on site, is that okay? Yeah. Happy to talk about that. So it's, it's been a strategic choice around Onera and like, particularly in times of COVID, there was a sense of like, we want seclusion, we want privacy as a guest, and we want them to have their own little private bubble. So if I were to up staff, and I think in some areas for future resorts, we would consider, you know, additional staff, I would want it to be, I think Homie talked about this when you interviewed him, Aman, but it almost being like, as if they're not there, right? It's, it's kind of like, you know, you don't really see them and it's all kind of going on behind the scenes. So, you know, we've been able to operate very staff light and we want to continue to do that. There's things that we don't think as a company that the modern traveler cares about as much, say, as, as a, as a tradition, you know, traditional traveler, more old fashioned traveler, things like a front desk, you know, we may, we may disagree there, but yeah, we don't think that a guest needs that. If we give them, if there's a customer journey that kind of walks them through the whole process and makes them feel comfortable and it's very clear and easy in terms of how to check in and, and get into their space, we don't think it's necessary. So we've converted front desk and lobby areas into communal spaces for big buyout groups to use or additional rooms or, you know, in more of our renovation projects. And when I think about Onera, like landscape hotel type properties, unique stays, we want to have congregation space, but it's way more geared towards an event or a, you know, bringing a, a chef in for a dining experience or something like that than it is just more of a lobby, like check-in type deal. So yeah, it's worked so far. I love doing the podcast because I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago that said she screwed up by not adding a front desk. And here you are saying our strategy <laughs> is not to have a front desk. That's why this is so cool because yeah. you get the insights from both sides. I want to pivot a little bit. I was with a group of other hotel owners this week in New York. We talked to Ian Schrager. And one of the fascinating things was he was basically saying that everyone that's made an impact on the hospitality industry has predominantly come from outside of hotels. And when I talk about hospitality, I'm talking about hotels. And he came from the nightclub industry before nightclubs. He, you know, was just a random guy, right? He was out there. What do you think the big opportunities are having the lens that you have, which wasn't traditionally coming from a hotel background to creating these unique stays and what you're building at Onera and anything else you have in the pipeline? So yeah, I don't know if you know, I actually came from nightclubs to some extent too. I was a promoter in New York City for a few years. Everyone was and, a promoter yeah, back in the so, day. I so love I, it. I have had some of that. I had an event and promotion company in college. So I've always liked hosting. And I think there's you know a big element of that that plays into hospitality. But even then and today, I aim to inspire my guests, right? Or people that I'm hosting. And I think that's something I've brought to, to Onera and, and I'll bring to future projects. I think that certainly fresh perspective, I'm not anchored to the same things that people that have been in hospitality for a long time are anchored to, like maybe a front desk or like, uh, you know, whatever, like daily cleaning in room or, or things that, you know, maybe people don't care about as much as, as you know, industry people think. And I'm able to push the envelope on that a little bit. Cost per key, right? For a limited service product. I mean, that's something that like, if the P&L makes sense, the yield makes sense, like why do we have to be anchored to 
what a select service hotel cost per key is. And I have some of those back and forth with with the REIT that bought out Onera and and there's a balance there, right? But yeah, willing to be willing to push the envelope, willing to do things that like traditionalists in the industry might think is a little crazy, but you know, I see a path and you know, have a vision and you know, believe that if we deliver an exceptional experience and amazing, inspiring product in a good location that people will come. What is the modern traveler and what specifically in your mind changed for good post COVID? Yeah. So I think the modern traveler is extremely interested in experiences and they're willing to pay for experiences. Something we're seeing with the modern traveler, I think, is that previously it was like, heads in beds, and I'm spending my money outside of, let's say, my room. Whereas now, I think the modern traveler is willing to spend half of their budget on the place that they're staying, maybe more. Our guests at Onera come to Onera, and a lot of them don't leave. So I think that's very, and are really trying to experience the property and the uniqueness. So they're attracted to experiences, unique design and aesthetic, something that stands out on that front, You know, tech-enabled, which I think in a lot of ways can lead to more limited staff. And there's not I don't think they place as much value on, you know, things that were more historically important in hospitality, like a like a front desk, like an on-site concierge, you know, like a daily cleaning or turn down service, things like that. I think that the modern traveler is is more interested in paying a premium for super unique design and experience versus a lot of staff and kind of hand holding and that side of it. Ian Schrager actually mentioned that he thought daily housekeeping is in certain segments are going to evolve to basically disappear or change. How would you feel about a la carte in your real estate? Would you think that that cheapens the experience or if someone's like saying, all right, I want to pay $30 extra a day for daily housekeeping, whereas someone else might opt out of that because they don't want anyone coming in the room? I think giving the option is fine. I mean, you, you have to be careful, I guess, when you're, you know, we're a lot of our product is $1,000 a night plus on the weekends, right? And that could, the reality is if somebody reached out and asked, we would do it. It's just not something that that's going to come expected. And we communicate that, right? In our communication, it's like we're limited staff. This is your own little private, you know, magical bubble. If you need us, we're here, but we don't have a, robust staff. And another thing that I think allows people to feel taken care of is our remote team and how fast to respond they are. I think they're faster than like the hotel front lobby is a lot of times when I call down and how many times I have to wait with the ring. You know, they're responding within a couple of minutes via however you want, call, message, text. And so I think that helps people feel taken care of. But yeah, in terms of the add-ons, um, we've certainly focused more on experience add-ons and leveraging third parties when it comes to that. So again, trying to to limit the overhead and, and on-site staff requirements. So we'll work with local vendors. And it's a cool way to work with local people, right? Local creators and tour guides and you know people that can, can add a lot of value and a unique perspective and, and experience for your guests. So we've we actually been working with this company called Way. I don't know if you're familiar with them, way experiences, but, and have, we have like eight to 10 experiences per property now from private in-room chef experience, in-room massage. We have romantic packages we'll do because a lot of our guests are, you know, couples getaway. And we have found 
so far, like at Onera, our most successful experiences are in-room experiences because people don't want to leave and they want it, you know, they're paying all this money for this amazing unit in this, this setting where they can have these moments of perfection. And if they can bring even more of curated aspects of that experience that they want, then they're willing to pay for it. You've mentioned Onera a bunch of times. We haven't really told anyone yeah. what it is. So why don't we start from how Onera came to be and maybe you can weave in what it is and then we'll talk about how it connects to your vision of a unique stays. Yeah, so um, Onera came to be because I, I mentioned some of it. I did this you know, road trip, re-fell in love with the great outdoors, had seen some of these unique stays in Joshua Tree that, that my friend and now partner Jesse was doing and the numbers he was doing. COVID hit kind of, you know, decimated a lot of our urban STR business. And that was around the point where I really wanted to move forward with a glamping resort or some sort of landscape hotel. Started looking for land in like April, May, 2020. Had some misses along the way, you know, let one slip through my fingers because I wasn't quick enough. You know, one, we spent a lot of money for me at the time in due diligence. In grand scheme of things, it wasn't that much, but and then came to find out that we couldn't do what we wanted to do on that property. But the the actual Anera Fredericksburg property, we found, I think it was like August of 2020, closed on it in December. And that was Fredericksburg. So Texas Hill Country, wine country, you know, wide open spaces, cool views. The really cool thing about our property there is that we're a mile from Main Street Fredericksburg, which is one of the biggest attractions there. Tons of restaurants, shops, you name it. And but the property felt like this untouched piece of of you know wilderness and forest. It feels like you're in the middle of nowhere, but you're a mile away from Main Street Fredericksburg, which was pretty integral to our model because we didn't have F and B on site. So super convenient for people to go and get their F and B right right nearby. But we found, so we found this property and the vision all along was to create super unique unit concepts, had done some market research and was seeing that like tree houses were just doing amazingly well. I was excited by that idea. Also saw some like safari tents doing well. And in the first project, we wanted to do bespoke eclectic and a mix of like hard-sided units, like tree houses and container homes soft-sided units like tents. We have one that's shaped like a cocoon, one that's a dome, one that are more like, you know, typical safari tents. So we we wanted to try a bunch of different things, see what would play the best with guests. And yeah, so we bought the land December 2020 and started on this path to build this what I now call a landscape hotel. At the time, we were thinking about glamping resort. My sort of issue with the glamping term and concept is that most of the glamping product out there is this really, it's like a mid-tier offering, right? There's a lot of them are not temperature controlled. They don't have HVAC. They may not even have a bathroom in the unit. And that wasn't what I was trying to deliver at all, right? After my RV experience, I wanted a frictionless, you know, luxury experience, all the comforts of home and then some. And yeah, that, that's, that's how Onera was born. So wanted to be higher end luxury and felt like, you know, under canvas, auto camp, all these other players were more in that mid-tier. And there was a gap in the market of people that wanted to pay more for a, a more luxury experience. What's a landscape hotel? Landscape hotel for me is 
It's a hospitality asset hotel that's built into the landscape in some way or another. So we have treehouse units that are you know built around trees or within trees. At our new property, Onera Wimberley, we have these hillside units that have vegetated rooftops with native grasses and wildflowers and all this that are, are growing in the roofs so that it blends into the hillside. And all you see is, you know, this floor to ceiling glass along the front, these beautiful cedar hot tubs and decks facing this amazing view. So it's this sort of uh, beautiful harmony between the landscape and what the property has to offer and is calling for and creating these super inspiring units that are like additive to that landscape. Why did you do all these different kinds of designs? Was this like a prototyping lab and you had a bigger vision to roll out more of them? Or was it intentional for the design and the experience you wanted to create? So for Onera Fredericksburg, there was was certainly a bit of a trial, see what would do better and and where we wanted to invest more time and energy into. Onera Wimberley, we actually only have two unit types. So a bit of a departure from that. We have the the greenhouse style units with the green roofs I was describing. And then we have these treehouse style units, very similar to the spyglass that are near Fredericksburg, a little bigger, but still that kind of tube-shaped treehouse. So we have 12 of those and 16 of the greenhouses. At Onera Fredericksburg, we have you know eight different unit types now. We're doing an expansion there as well. And because we went so bespoke and unique on phase one, we kind of had to continue that theme with phase two. So to my architect and, and GC's dismay, we're, we're doing like another eight unit types in phase two. We'll bring Onera Fredericksburg from 11 keys to 34. We're doing some multi-unit concepts there as well. We have like an eight, eight room, eight bedroom lodge, which can be bought out as an eight bedroom house type thing with a great room that can be a small event space, or we can rent the rooms individually to couples. Um, and then we have bunch of very interesting, unique concepts coming out for the Onera Fredericksburg expansion. Treehouse units, more ground style units that are still very unique and cool. How do you balance the integrity of design and good design with wanting to do all these different versions of the same thing without making it look like Disneyland? Yeah. So, I mean, we certainly try to go more sophisticated and elegant and minimalistic in some ways with, you know, it's, it's a very muted color palette, right? You know, earth tones, again, trying to blend into the landscape, not, you know, not stick out like a sore thumb, right? So I think there's an element of that. I think also that every unit type, you know, none of the unit types are like, I don't consider any of them to be super like Gaudi or, you know, very kind of in your face and loud. There's, there's, really much more of a intention around how do we make this fit in? Where's the nature connection? So there is still a through line, even though they are all very different. Like if you look at our narrow Fredericksburg, I mean, we have, you know, Monarch, that's a butterfly, basically, right? We have Cocoon, you know, another sort of ode to that, which is a tented style unit. So there's definitely some, some cohesion there. And on the, on the expansion, we're, 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 you know, keeping that in mind as well. Can you talk about the process and the timeline of developing one of these things from scratch? Because I'm chuckling a little bit because, you know, COVID happened and then immediately in August, you're like making offers, you're running around, you're coming up with this business plan. That's pretty like short timeline. And then you executed on the vision, built these things. We didn't, we're not going to, we didn't go into it yet, but 
you sold it, you sold an interest to it. There's another guy out there who created this thing, Live Oak Lake, who did a similar thing in a very short timeline and exited it with like proof of concept of of one year. So can you talk through just generally like the timeline when you're going out and finding locations, how long it takes to build? Yeah. So uh, what I did for Onera Fredericksburg, I would not do again. I certainly learned some some hard lessons in there, but we made it work. We figured it out. Still has done very well. And how quickly we got it up was a big value add as well. So we purchased the land in December of 2020. And then we started construction January of 21. And we opened our doors November 15th of 2021. That's less than a year from close of land. About 10, 10 and a half months of construction. And, you know, I was managing infrastructure side of it, like below ground utilities. And then my design builder in that project, Artistry, who was more of like a bespoke treehouse builder, <laughs> um, not a big GC at all. Right. So worked with them. They were great. I mean, look, they, they you know, in collaboration with myself, we came up with Monarch, which has done extremely well. They already had Spyglass out of the box. And, you know, I loved that. So we used it as well. So they, they were great. And they worked into the nights to get this thing done. And, you know, with all that said, I now have a GC that does much bigger commercial projects. And we, we plan the proper way. We don't wing things, right? Like I did on my first project. Like Wimberley, you know, we, we, did, we were a year a year of planning. I bought both tracks in like September of, so it was even over a year, September of 21. And then we broke ground very beginning of this year, like beginning of January. And I think we're going to get a, a better quality product. And we were also in a market that required more planning. Texas, Texas unincorporated counties in general are pretty friendly, right? For this kind of thing. And that's part of it. Just being able to get something up and running. There's not a whole lot of permitting and hoops you have to jump through. There's a few things, but nothing major. Fredericksburg and the county that we're in, Gillespie in particular, was was pretty easy to work with. You know, I was talking to the Economic Development Commission. They were super favorable to us doing it. You know, there was there was a, a guy in the municipality over there that made a joke like, we don't care if you put cardboard boxes as long as the septic and, you know, the fire safety and the couple things they care about were water. Water is actually the big one in Texas. So whatever water district you're trying to develop in and Wimberley, where Onera 2 is going to be, the, the water district is particularly challenging. And there's some beautiful, amazing water features in Wimberley that they're very protective of as they should be. Jacob's Well and Blue Hole and Cypress Creek, which is kind of part of Blue Hole. These beautiful water features that like have run dry for for periods of of the year when we're in significant drought. So there's a lot of scrutiny around that. We we had to spend a lot of time and and some money on attorneys and you know sort of neighborhood diplomacy and and going to the water district and my GC just did an amazing job with this. Really, just making sure that when we were coming up for approval, that unanimously approved, got through, no issues. But it was because we planned the right way, right? For Onera Fredericksburg, there was a lot more of kind of winging it and you know going for it. And the great thing is with Onera Wimberley. You know, we were coming in on time and on budget because we did the proper planning. With Onera Fredericksburg, we were way over budget. I mean, there was part of it that, yeah, I was just delusional about cost, right? And COVID supply craziness. And we had imported some stuff from China, which I w- wouldn't do again. That was a whole nother debacle. 
and we had big delays there um, and labor shortage. So it was, I mean, there was a perfect storm, but some of it was around planning and poor budgeting, which we've, we've learned a lot and, and much, we're much better at today. So maybe you can talk to us about what mistakes you made and what you learned in buying and selecting the site. And then what you learned in constructing the site that you've now kind of pivoted or fixed in the Wimberley project. Yeah. So, so you, you said mistakes around buying and selecting the site. Is that yeah? Because you, yeah. you know, you got close on two deals at the beginning. What was wrong right. with those deals? Or maybe the better question is, what do you look for now? In properties. Yeah. Yeah. I in think, the ground. I think that probably is a better question. In terms of the the two, you know, the ones that I missed out on. One, I was just slow. And I've never been slow again, right? I mean, now like I see a place and we're getting that thing under contract that day or within like a day or two. So that has never happened to me again. I generally act with a with a sense of urgency. I think that's part of what's helped me be successful. It might be the number one thing that's helped me be successful. And I apply that to buying land now as well. And the the other property, it was it was just a deed restriction issue, right? And you know the the seller and listing agent and all this were telling me what I wanted to hear, right? And then upon some further diligence, like we can't do what we want to do here. There's like a subdivision and it's like, you know, clear in the rules that we can't do what we want to do. So I look at those things first now before bringing anyone out to the site to to do any sort of site planning or, or concepting or, you know, due diligence with like my GC and architect. So yeah, those are some learnings there that we've gotten better at. And then in terms of what, what I look for with land, so first thing is going to be market, right? You're going to pick a market. And when I think about market, what I did with Onera and what, what I still try to do is try to find markets that have either currently or the ability to have massive outperforming couples units, right? These like smaller, which really is like maxifi- maximizing revenue per square foot. That's kind of how I think about it. So where is there a couple stay? That is doing a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year, and how cool and unique is it? And do I think I can beat that? Do I think I can be best in market? Do I think there's even a chance to to best those numbers? Even though I'll underwrite to those numbers, do I think there's upside? Um, so that's one way we think about looking at markets. Being driving destination, you know, within one to four hours of of a major market with considerable wealth and people that can uh, afford to stay in a $500, a $1,000 a night plus place. Another thing we look for is those same markets that you know have wealthy travelers, but have a supply imbalance of just few to no four and five-star hotels. So Fredericksburg, for example, I mean, we have the Albert Hotel coming in, which is going to be, I think, a five-star hotel. But before that, there was nothing. So you'd have like the CEO of our of this of the REIT that that bought out Onera that was staying with his wife at the roadside motel. And it's like clearly these people would love to pay three, four times as much if there was somewhere nice to stay. So that's all around the market picking. And then in terms of the specific property, so views are the I think the most important thing. And that can be a beautiful landscape. It can be views for miles and miles and miles, like we have at Onera Wimberley just some of the best views in the hill country, I think. And then I think water features is a big one as well. I've come around on that to, it can also be man-made water features or sort of enhancing what's already there. You don't have to have this like amazing riverfront or 
you know, even Isaac Live Oak Lake, like he did some of this, right? He really brought that lake to life. I mean, yeah, it wasn't was, that like a a mud pond or yeah, like <laughs> a cow pond? Like I don't, yeah, it was it's basically a hole with water in it, right? Yeah, and he put some like airifiers in there, and so it makes it much clearer. And you can go out with kayaks, and I'm sure he sort of like supplemented the water a little bit in some way or another. I don't know if you know like Hawking uh, the cliffs at Hawking Hills in Ohio. Really cool vacation rental landscape hotel type property. And they have these like natural pools that, you know, a lot of it probably was natural, but there's, you can tell there's been a lot that's been enhanced, but it still looks very rustic and natural and, and just super, you know, enticing and attractive. So some sort of water feature, whether that's man-made natural views. And then the one that's like, you know, I'm actually starting to wonder how important is it is the, the closeness to attractions, right? So whether that's main street, or, you know, some natural feature, a national park, something like that. And I think you have to be close enough for sure. But I used to want to be like a mile, like one to three miles away, like super close to main attractions. But now I believe partially from Live Oak Lake, I mean, there's not a whole lot going on in Waco. And Amon, I mean, is close, but still 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes from like Lake Powell or, you know, anything like that. So I'm starting to come around more to this idea of, if we create something truly exceptional, then people will you know, go a little farther. So now I'm actually more interested in just amazing piece of property and less concerned with how close it is to uh, an attraction or a market. How important then is it to have experiences on site or the availability of experiences on site? And then I don't know if you're evolving at Wimberley into some sort of amenity that may need to be serviced, like a bar or a campfire cookout, like something like that. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm I'm glad you brought it up. I was thinking about it, and and that's the the perfect question. So, if if we're fifteen to twenty minutes out, we're going to need some sort of F and B. That's my view. Onera is a mile from Main Street. You, there's fifty restaurants you can go to. Like we don't have to have F and B, but if we're farther out, I, I think we do. It's a little scary to me because I've never done F and B, and I know the margins are kind of tight. But I believe we can with the right partner. Right, I would want a partner and have somebody that you know, knows that inside and out that I have full faith in and has done it and has a reputation and a draw um, and and do it with them. And I still, there's a lot, a lot for me to learn and look at on the F&B side. So I'm not going to like act like I know a whole bunch yet. So that's the main one that I think we would need. For Wimberley, we're still like a three minute drive from Wimberley Square, like five minutes at most. So there's a bunch of restaurants there. We do have an event barn at Wimberley, which is about 85 to 90 person occupancy. Beautiful building. It is, I mean, it's got a whole curtain wall of glass facing this incredible view, gabled ceilings, mix of of steel and wood. And it's just a beautiful building. Going to be, I think, one of the nicest ones in Wimberley. So right now that's posited to be a multi-use space. So it could be for a wedding. It could be for a corporate retreat. You know, there's a bunch of different ways. And we have it separated considerably from our pool. So that if we want to, we could rent that separately and still allow guests to enjoy the pool area. And there's other things I want to do with it too, though, or try, like, you know, bring a yoga class in, bring a, a dining experience in and kind of, again, try more work with those third parties. But look, like if the right F&B partner approached me, do I think we could be the nicest restaurant in the Hill Country? I do. I mean, it's it's that level of a building and, and design and all the rest that with the right team, if the right opportunity got put in front of me, I think we'd look at it. 
The challenge for you and others is is scale. Mm-hmm. So if you are in Wimberley and let's just say it's maybe in the middle of nowhere, you can't hire an operator to service 10 little units because if half of the people go in to get a coffee, you know, you're selling like five or 10 coffees a day. No one can make money on that. But if you have a destination restaurant that somehow you can convince people to drive to or go to that is a standalone and then also serves as an amenity to guests, then I think that would work incredibly well because you're also getting eyes on your units. People are like, wow, I would actually love to stay here. I had a great meal here. Yeah. And you're bringing people to the site to service the restaurant so they can benefit the guests. A hundred percent. And look, I, I wouldn't put a restaurant in for a 10 unit product. And, and that's, we haven't done that, right? O'Neill Fredericksburg's 11 units. We don't have any F&B. Wimberley's 28. So it's it's a little bit bigger. It's I, normally I think it's like thirty four keys and above is kind of ideal. Who said that? I, I don't. I, that's where I heard somewhere. I, I don't even know. You got to check that fact. Okay. I, well, that's a question yeah. I want to ask you because what is the like? How do you think about scale in that context now? As you've experimented with growing them, because I've seen these things that are like ten units, and it's like wow, we're sold out every night. It's like okay, but you're ten units and you're an hour outside of Austin, like. It's not lighting the world on fire. And then to go replicate that might be challenging. Where have you found the sweet spot to be where you're getting paid for the time and effort you're putting in, but you're also creating some mass without having a whole lot of vacancy? Yeah. So look, I mean, we're we're leveling up from 11 to we have a 28 site coming online. We're expanding on Fredericksburg to 34 keys. There's a ton of people moving to Texas. There's a ton of wealth moving to Texas. So I believe in the market. And one thing Texas has going for it is that there's not a lot of super cool things to do in Texas. So if we can provide that for all the wealth and you know the triangle of of cities with millions of people, then I think we're going to do well. And you know, 28, 34 units, it's still not you know 100, 200. I think it's very achievable. And one thing that we have gotten pretty good at, and we're going to continue to push, is our marketing and, and particularly social media. And there's a lot of aspects of marketing that we haven't even really touched yet. We do nothing with ads. Like there, there's a lot of areas that we want to roll out and do more of, especially as we get bigger. But right now we're like just relying on Instagram basically. And we're putting out really good content there. We've built out this whole social media team, basically shooters, editor, people that do storyboarding and social media management, recruit the influencers, like VAs that help support that team. And we've gone from... 0% direct when we opened, which was just all Airbnb. And that was the that was how we underwrote it. Direct bookings were gravy. And now we're 70% consistently month over month. And we think we can get that to 80 or 90. So. 70% direct. Yeah. How did you ramp up not only the property, but the social media effort? And then how did you bring people away from Airbnb to your direct site through that process? Yeah. So we we don't try and do the whole move them from Airbnb over. We're trying to reach a, a different audience and like connect with them through Instagram. And we're, we're trying to reach an emotional buyer, what we call an aspirational buyer, as opposed to a price shopper on Airbnb. So instead of like, oh, I'm going to this place, let me see like the best value I can get. It's, oh my God, this place is amazing. I have to stay here. And it almost doesn't matter if it's like 650 or 950, they're going to pay if they have the ability to. So so that's a, a big point of distinction and a reason that we like direct more than Airbnb. But yeah, in terms of the ramp up, we so initially it was all Airbnb 
And then I had an influencer hit me up on Airbnb that was basically like, hey, you got to let me stay, do a giveaway. And I was skeptical. And we were just getting our direct book- booking website up and running. We had barely taken any direct bookings. And she she was persistent. And I was like, oh, we'll give it a try. So she came out. She didn't even stay because she had a conflict or something. So you just came out, took content, did a giveaway. And we ended up doing... I think it was ten dollars to $15,000 in direct bookings from her coming and doing a giveaway. And then she came back a month later and did another one on a new account that she was growing for travel. Her first account was called SA Foodie. It was more of a food hospitality focused account, which I think has a lot of crossover. Food, food accounts can be good for hotels as well. But then she had a travel one she was starting and that one produced similar results. So, I mean, that's what really kind of turned me on to there is something here. This ROI is ridiculous. There's you know, the market has not fully figured this out yet and we need to go all in here. So the first like year, basically, not even year, the first like nine months or so, I was doing it myself, right? I was just posting photos. We weren't even really doing reels. And I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about Instagram or didn't at that time, right? And Amanda, actually this first influencer, she kind of helped me initially, gave me some tips. So I was doing it myself, was just getting inbound influencers, and you know, I was doing pretty well. I mean, we did 30, 35% direct in that first year. And then it was early beginning of this year that we decided to first we tried to hire an agency. And that, you know, it just it didn't really it went it went okay. And but I thought I was doing better on my own. But I was like, I still I can't do this myself. We were reporting to this REIT now. I have these other massive projects. I can't like be managing the Instagram. So we built out the capability internally with the idea of we're going to do it for all of our properties. And we also are doing it for third parties as well. So I have a company called Stay Awasi that does marketing and property management for third party assets as well, not just you know the assets that I've built and renovated. And that that company is the one that employs editors, shooters, creatives, you know, social media managers, et cetera. So break that down then for me. What is going all out? on social and your media strategy mean for Onera Fredericksburg? Yeah. So for social media strategy, there is a content creation piece, which like this agency that wasn't even really included. And, and it was, you know, 5,000 a month, like just Meaning actually like filming. Yeah, like, what is filming, content creation? Yeah, get, getting content, having a shooter go stagers, models, yep. like, you know, doing a shoot production. Yeah. And to do that right, to get good lifestyle content and content that will play well on social media, is, it's not cheap. You know, shooters are, you know, good shooters are a thousand bucks a day, right? At least 800. And models are, you know, whatever, a couple hundred bucks a day, at least a few hundred bucks. And, you know, stagers are similar. So, you know, gets up there pretty quick. And, but we've gone from, I mean, we've more than doubled our direct bookings, right? So we're, we're investing in social media, but we're seeing, you know, the returns in terms of, in terms of the revenue side of it and the booking side of it. And since we shifted over from like agency and me just kind of hacking it together with photos, we only started that in, we started in May, May of this year. And we had like 18,000 followers and now we have close to 50. And so obviously the growth is really accelerating and we've been able to maintain that 70% direct month over month. But yeah, we're spending, you know, thousands of bucks a month on content creation, thousands of bucks a month on social media management and some amount on influencers. Initially, we weren't paying influencers. But then I, I had my first influencer that we did pay. 
they were like 3500 bucks and they were you know they we thought they were really good and they they actually came recommended i think from Isaac as well and we did like a 35 to 40,000 dollar bump in direct bookings in the next like 10 days or so after they posted so that's like a more than 10x return so you know we're very open to paying the right influencers now that's the thing it's like you have to weed through to find influencers that have a relevant targeted audience that you're trying to reach and that have good engagement. So we try to target like 5% engagement, which is really high. We'll do like 3% plus, but industry standards like 1%. So engagement is really key. And we've had a good experiences where the influencer actually creates really good content that then we own and we can use elsewhere. But their filming and their shooting and their styling for the good ones is actually as good as you could pay an agency for or pay the best people in the business to do. Yeah. So that is, uh, you know, we UGC, right? User generated content. And that is one big benefit we get from influencers. There's like the audience and reach benefit. And then there's the content. So we, we try to do the same thing. And we're actually talking to uh, an early stage startup that is is creating this product that essentially allows you to create like loyalty program and rewards and this sort of thing for UGC from guests, not even influencers. And I think we think the, the product's very compelling. We actually might even be an advisor for them. But at minimum, like if we can help incentivize our guests to generate content and like push us on social, we're less reliant on influencers and it's a sustainable model. Walk me through the bigger strategy of booking direct with you? Like, obviously, okay, everyone knows that they're going to save, you're going to save some commission with Airbnb. But how does this all play into the bigger strategy? OTA fee savings or booking engine savings is, is, is a small piece of it in my mind. It's a piece. So Airbnb is charging the guest 15 or 12% and the host, they're charging 3%. That 3%, we're going to pay either way. It's just payment processing. But we scoop almost all the 12 because we try to maintain price parity. We're not doing like, a, oh, you book with us direct, you get a discount. It, because again, we're hit, we're you know trying to reach an audience that's actually less price sensitive than the Airbnb shopper. So we try to do price parity. And then the other benefits are in line with that. You're reaching an aspirational buyer that's less price sensitive and you own the customer, right? You have, a, you have their contact information, you know, you can remarket them, you can market new properties to them, you can share like Isaac and, and I have talked about sharing audiences because one issue with the unique stay space, you're 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 you you're targeting a guest that wants something super unique and novel. So you don't get a ton of repeat business. We've only been open a couple of years, so hopefully that will increase. But if we can reach people that have been to other unique stays, they're the perfect demographic of traveler that that would want to come to, you know, Onera as well. So that's kind of the overarching strategy on why we believe in direct so much and and why we want to own the customer. Maybe we'll have to talk about a business plan after, but do you think there's a potential to effectively franchise and create a brand in your space so you can leverage what everyone's doing as long as they meet certain standards and there's consistency, but then you can share the customers throughout. Uh, are you talking like kind of like a soft brand? Yeah, but you, but not with a big brand where you create it. Yeah. So it's, and then you're calling 10 of your friends and saying, hey, let's all put into this thing. I'm going to own the soft brand and you're all going to pay me a franchise fee, but I'll market to you. It's the same as a hotel. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I definitely think it's needed. So uh, funny enough, actually, have you heard of storied collections? No. Michael Golden. And so they, they started this soft brand for like castle properties. Yeah. And have done quite well with it. I mean, I I don't know. They, they probably have, you know, over a hundred castles or something like that in, uh, in this soft brand. And he's now creating one for outdoor hospitality called Nook. And, you know, we're very likely going to be a founding member, initial member of, of Nook and potentially advisory. So yeah, I think there's certainly a play there. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll talk about it more. Um, I think there's other things we, we can talk about too, in terms of the type of property that I want to develop next. And yeah, we can, we can dive into that or not, but, but essentially tropical treehouse resort. I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that unless you want to know more. I want to know more. <laughs> yeah. So essentially we want to create an exotic fruit farm, tropical forest that has these amazing landscape hotel, unique stay style units integrated within the forest. So think like, you know, passion fruits and, you know, cherimoya trees and banana trees and all these things that kind of like envelope the units and you can pull fruit from them when you're on your, you know, treehouse deck and, you know, ultimately doing like a farm to table type F&B restaurant on site that leverages a lot of this. So my partner, Jesse, he has exotic fruit farming, you know, as, as a business and specifically e-commerce for exotic fruit boxes, like direct to consumer and market is booming. So we know that you can make about $200,000 an acre, you know, with this exotic fruit farming side of the business, you could have a farm to table business as well. And then I think in the right markets, you can do 60 to 80 units, you know, very high end upwards of a thousand dollar rev bar, conservatively seven or $800. So, I mean, we're talking like level of, I mean, not Amon, but like Amon light, right? Sort of in that universe and bringing this Bali, Costa Rica, Tulum type experience stateside. So, which doesn't really exist. So like we're looking at outside San Diego, we're looking at Florida. Those are the main areas where you can do this. It's called like a permaculture food forest with exotic fruits. So, you know, usually uh, it's, it's zones 10 and 11 are usually the the zones that you can do it, which is Florida's mostly 11 and San Diego, outside San Diego is that 10A, 10B. So I'm going to challenge you though, because you're calling out Amon. Yep. That is six star, yep. full service, fully amenitized. You've had tremendous success with a limited service model. So are you now thinking you want to creep in and add some services, add this farm to table restaurant, or you think you're still going to figure out a way where the luxury is in the built environment and the virtual service that you provide, but not necessarily the on-site human touch service? So we want all you know staff that we have to be revenue producing in some way. So that's going to be restaurant and farm. So we're going to have a lot of a lot of staff from that standpoint. So vast majority will be revenue producing. I still definitely believe more in this sort of CapEx in amazing design and super cool units that kind of sell themselves and and provide that luxury experience within the unit. But it will certainly be more staff than like Onera Fredericksburg, right? But yeah, no, I'm I'm still not thinking the three or four to one staff ratio that like Amon has. And that's part of why I said Amon light, right? It's not, it's not 
to that level. But I think our units would be on par or cooler potentially than than some of what has Amon has, especially when you and it's just a different landscape, right? I mean that that's like a beautiful, super expansive, amazing desert landscape, and this would be a tropical exotic fruit forest stateside, which normally you have to fly a number of hours to experience. How important is design to you? And what is your aesthetic and what are you inspired by? Design is is super important to me. Uh, I'm not going to say that like I am the most creative designer myself, but I've been able to hire really good outside the box designers, architects, et cetera, and can sort of, you know, bring in the hospitality lens, the guest experience lens, and now the Instagrammable lens, the media lens. How is this going to shoot? How is it going to look from the interior? How does it look from the exterior? How are we going to get that money shot that can be multi-million view real? And that's that's really how I'm thinking about things today. But yeah, I mean, I've worked with a number of different designers and architects. It's always a challenge to find the ones that are highly collaborative and work well in, in groups and play nice with others. But we've gotten better at that. And, you know, it's it's something I, I, I look for. So let's take Fredericksburg because that exists. So we can talk about the specifics there, or you can tell me what you're trying to target from a cost standpoint, a basis. And then what are you trying to yield on that after? Well, let's keep it at the NOI line. Sure. So I'll start actually talking on the the yield side of things. I can get like roughly into the cost side of it. The REIT doesn't want me to get too nitty gritty into the detail around the cost. We'll, we'll side. talk about the REIT too, because you mentioned that a couple of times. But like, what are the margins on these things? Like, if you look at a hotel PL, you know, a lot of yeah. hoteliers out there be happy with like 20% NOI margins, 30% maybe, depending on the market. Where are you hitting? And also, on a per key basis, like what's your NOI per key? Yeah, so we're we're in the fifties and fifty percent or fifty thousand north of fifty percent. Okay, yeah, and, th- and that's the goal. And and there was actually points where we're even a little higher on that. Labor's gotten a little more expensive. You know, market's gotten hit a little bit, but we're normally in the in the fifties, and that's that's the goal. And then yeah, I mean, Summit released a report that stabilized ninety thousand dollars per per key per year, which is, I don't know, like six and a half X what their typical limited service hotels are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, maybe nine X actually in some bad. cases. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they, I think they had like 14,000 or something is like their typical. So yeah, our cost per key is three, three and a half times what their select service hotel keys cost, but NOI or you know NOI per key is six and a half times. So like, again, P&L makes sense. The yield makes sense. I think, you know, Homie talked about this too, right? It's, to me, that's what matters more as long as it can be justified and backed up. And yeah, so far we've, we've been able to back it up. What do you think the biggest risks are as you're looking to expand and grow to maintaining those types of margins and NOI per key? Yeah. So look, we're continuing to elevate the products. And so I think like Onero Wimberley is going to be a, a better product than Onero Fredericksburg. So yes, it's more keys, but we have this incredible pool we're putting in. There's this beautiful event barn space we're going to have. The views are out of this world. I mean, way better than the Onero Fredericksburg views, west facing sunsets and all hard sided units, which is, I know, a departure from what, what some people are saying in the space. We found that hard sided units 
what people care about is the uniqueness, I think. It's not whether it's a tent or hard-sided. And for us, the hard-sided lasts longer. It's easier on the operational side of things, especially in like the markets we're in. I mean, Texas deals with some extreme weather. So yeah, we like hard-sided. We like very unique and a very you know upscale unit. And so we think that's going to allow us to continue to achieve those ADRs, achieve the occupancy. Wimberley is also only 45 minutes from Austin. So we think we're going to get not only Wimberley and Hill Country travel, but also like somebody coming to Austin that wants to stay somewhere cool, unique and different, you know, corporate from Austin. So yeah, we think there's a, a lot of opportunity there and plenty of ways to fill rooms, intimate weddings, super high price point, intimate weddings. You got to do it. Oh yeah. 100%. Weddings is where you make money on F&B in hospitality. I mean, if you talk to wedding venue people that don't have a real restaurant, you know, they are doing very, very high margins in the experiential type places. Yep. Yep. You know, we see it. I mean, look, I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen a comparable venue to Onera Wimberley. If you were to like do a full buyout in central Texas, like where we're at with the event barn, we're going to have the pool, like how cool the units are. Like I don't, so in terms of that super high price point, luxury, intimate destination wedding type thing that you want to do stateside, I, I think we're in a, a good spot for that. How did you raise capital for your first deal? You talked about, well, let's talk about Fredericksburg because you said yeah. that was in a fund. Is that kind of a single asset fund? Was it spread across other investments? How did that work? Yeah. So I actually, when we first started in Fredericksburg and was I was raising equity for it, just called up you know friends and family, raised like, it was under a million, but but some amount of money between just network I had built and that I had made some money for them on urban STRs and that sort of thing. So raised money that way, but but we knew that we were interested in the fund. We just the fund wasn't created yet. We were still going through legal and all the rest. So we had an option to roll their investment into the fund. So then we finished the fund, closed on that about six months after I initially raised for Onera Fredericksburg. So we we rolled that in, which was great because one of the issues with these having these types of assets in a fund is that like it takes even with getting that up and running in a year it's still a year it's not like you're spitting out cash flow within uh within a couple months of, of buying an asset so and that fund was it wasn't just on fredericksburg so it, it includes the equity in air fredericksburg our hotel in palm springs spirit of sophia that we bought and renovated and it also includes the equity in onera wimberley so that few million dollar fund that we raised, we really sort of stretched it a long way, turned it into over 35 million in assets. What were the terms of the fund? The fund, the first fund we did, it was 8% pref and then 80-20. You know, we have a catch up after that and then 80-20. And then once we hit 25% IRR, it goes to 75-25 and at 30, it's 70-30. But first fund. And I think that you know, I think we could probably get better economics today, but you know, it was it was un, I was unproven on the development side and allowed me to to build what we have now. So, and do you have a time limit on that fund, or can you keep continuing to invest that capital? That is a term fund, so it had a two year investment period and five year maximum five year term, three to five, and so we have another about maximum five years. So. We'll have to exit those. We'll we'll probably sell our now minority stake in the Onera properties, potentially back to the REIT is one way that we can exit those. And and Spirit of Sophia, we need to get stabilized cash flow for a couple of years and 
you know, we'll look to potentially have a nice exit on that one as well. What's been the biggest difference between Spirit of Sophia, which is a more traditional hotel, versus the Onera properties? Yeah, so Spirit of Sophia, it's it's still unique in the sense that we do like we focus on bu- big buyouts. So it's a twenty three bedroom hotel, but it's split down the middle with two private sides, one that's an 11 bedroom and the other one that's a 12 bedroom. Each has their own nice private pool, hot tub. So we rent it to groups and we've we've had success there. The biggest differences, I mean, look, I would say on both sides, you know, staffing and labor are challenged for different reasons. Fredericksburg, it's just like, there's not a lot of labor. Palm Springs, it's just kind of expensive. So that's that's been a challenge at both. I would say that direct bookings at Spirit of Sophia, like we haven't nailed it yet. I mean, we're still doing, you know, we've been pushing Instagram and doing a lot there. And we did about $200,000 in direct bookings, which is about 20% of total revenue in uh, this year is what we're, we're, we're on pace to do. So still good, but not 70%. So trying to figure that out, what content to put out that will really drive direct bookings. Because again, you're, you're not just convincing a, a couple at that point, you're convincing a group of 20 people that that this is the place they want to stay and you know they're all comfortable with booking direct and all the rest. So, we're figuring that out, but we have some we have some exciting strategies on the horizon to push that. Well, how do you know that that's the right strategy? Maybe single bookings is the right strategy. How do you reconcile that? We we did we tested single bookings earlier on when we did the renovation and it turned out that the supply demand imbalance for these really big places was out of whack in the sense there wasn't really the 11 and the 12 bedroom properties available. And so, but there was substantial demand for it. So we tried individual rooms a little bit initially, and we just were getting these like crazy, amazing bookings for the full sides. And we can still rent individual rooms and we do occasionally, but it's to like fill in gaps. So we, we just get, we get more from experience so far, we get more per room when we rent it together, actually. Let's talk about the REIT because yeah. when REIT comes in and REITs are active in the market, they're usually crowding out others and paying top dollar for assets and their stock price is high. So how, after like two years, did you get a REIT to buy into an asset class that they've probably never, ever bought into before? Yeah, so it was a process. I mean, it, it took a year to get the deal done. They were interested in us pre-open, actually. They had a, I think they had a mandate from their board to get into alternative hospitality. They really liked what we were doing and believed in it. Was certainly a departure from what they had been doing. I mean, the the REIT that bought a majority interest in us was doing select service hotels and mid-market, right? Not not luxury at all. But yeah, I think they had a newish executive team and a mandate from the board. And, you know, they saw an opportunity to, you know, Onera was a small deal, but when you combine Wimberley, which they provided uh, mezzanine debt and helped us secure the senior and they have an option to buy that. And then the expansion to Fredericksburg. I mean, you know, now we're talking about deploying 40-ish million dollars. So, I mean, that's, that, that's considerable. It's not, it's not just a little five, seven million dollar investment, which for a $4 billion REIT is, is chump change, right? They saw future potential to expand this product with us and and build build more Aneras. So, what did you learn negotiating with the REIT? And then talk to me about like making them kind of secure the senior on the new deal that you were cooking and providing the mez 
Yeah. Like, How did you work that in as part of your negotiations? How did that evolve? Oh, yeah, along the way. So, so look, I mean, they're professional negotiators, right? So, and my partner, actually, my partner, John, in the fund, you know, was really wanted to do the deal a lot more than I did in the beginning. I was like, I don't know if I want to like report to a public REIT and like deal with all that scrutiny. We're making good cash flow. Like why, why are we doing this? And ultimately what sold me on it was that they were going to enable us to do Wimberley because the financial markets were changing. I was starting to get really concerned. Like are we, we had, you know, a million and a half, 2 million into Wimberley already and pre-construction and plans and permitting, getting the whole thing ready to go. And I started to get concerned, like, are we going to be able to close the debt? And well, we knew that they wanted they wanted to deploy hundreds of millions in this alternative hospitality strategy. So it was a benefit to them that we had this other project we were bird dogging was like, you know, pretty far along, close to be able to to go ground up and that we had already raised the equity for it. That's a big piece. Like they like this strategy of like, we take the development risk, right? And then they have an option to buy it. But They've been really supportive, and I don't know if I would have been able to secure the financing without them, given the time. Right? We, Not we, at that price. Yeah, we closed on the debt at in January of this year. You it's know, a great so structure. It was, it was a very challenging time to raise, but you know they they helped provide us a letter of credit, which we pay for, we pay handsomely for, but allowed us to get the debt, and they also provided the mes debt. So, how involved were they, and are they in the? construction of what you're building and advising on the design or certain particulars that they might think are important? So they they really do trust us when it comes to what's going to sell and the design side of things. And when it comes to development, they're very comfortable with my new GC. He's very buttoned up, very good at what he does on time, on budget. And, you know, architect as well has been really strong. And we just had a, a design development meeting with them for the expansion of Fredericksburg. And, you know, it was all rainbows and unicorns. Everybody was super happy. This is amazing. And I mean, we're, we're super excited about it too, but they love what we're doing on that side of things. Um, it's more so on the op side, actually, right? The, the op side where they come from a very different world and like trying to report to their standards, provide them all the tracking information they want. Like when it comes to social media, and it's like, we can't give you what you want. And like, all we can tell you is that we're spending more on social and we've dub- doubled direct bookings. And we're trying to get better with that tracking. Like we're going to change our booking engine and, you know, revamp a new website so we can try and get better at tracking that information. But that's been the hardest part. It's more on the ops and reporting than it is on the design and development. We have, you know, we have some back and forth on cost per key and, and budgeting and all that. But They've been they've been pretty reasonable, all told, right? When it comes to, you know, hey, look, like we're commanding a massive premium on ADR and we have high occupancies. So it's gonna be a lot more expensive than the, you know, the limited service hotel you did for whatever, 175 or 200 K a key or whatever it is. And you're still managing them. So if they exercise their option on the new deal, maybe they buy you out of the original deal. I would be really afraid of replacing you as manager too. So it almost seems like you are very entrenched from a management standpoint because they can't just like, you know, in the hotel world, what you do is you can go hire Ambridge or any of these other big management companies. Yeah. In your space, there's not a million Ben Wolfs like running around. Yeah. They, they don't, they don't have the specialty in this asset class. Right. So yeah, we have security there. We have five year management agreement with options. 
be hard, you know, relatively hard for them to get rid of us. But I think, you know, again, they want, they want to work with us and they want to keep building and growing with us. So it's a good relationship from that standpoint. Like, you know, I really want to keep the management contracts, right? I mean, I'm very motivated to, to do well by them. We still own 10%. So there's aligned incentives there. And, you know, you, you know, I'm posting a ton about Onera. It's a big part of my track record. So I want it to be a massive success and continue to like sustainably produce results. So yeah, we're, I mean, you know, we're aligned on that front and yeah, it would kill me to lose the management contract in Onera, right? Like we, we have it rolling and yeah, and, you're not going to. Yeah. And you know, we, we it, it's, it's my baby. So yeah, it works out. It's good for both sides. I was with the CEO of AutoCamp past two days and I didn't ask him, I'm going to ask him, he's coming on the, on the podcast, but during COVID, obviously everyone wanted these unique stays and everyone wanted to be in an Airstream trailer in the middle of the woods. How has that changed, if at all, as we're now slowly coming back to more normal life? Others are more accelerated. Some people are working from home. Some people aren't. How has that changed? And where are you seeing bookings going into the future? Yeah. So look, I think sort of across markets, we've seen this this big trend in Q3 and Q4 of people going abroad again a lot more. And that's hurt some of this like domestic travel. And, and we've seen it a little bit. Like our market is down double digit percentage. We're we're like, you know, we've been up well up most of the year. And then going into Q3, we're closer to flat, right? And and Q4 is probably going to look similar, like to like unit basis. Similar in hotels, by the way. Yeah. In a lot of markets. Some markets that never recovered were are still recovering, but the hot ones are flat or down. Yeah. From last year. Yeah. Last year was so good. So look, I think that's going to flip back at some point. Like people got to get the abroad travel out of their system. They'll, they'll come back and it'll, it'll land somewhere in the middle. I personally have a belief that the cream will rise. And, and I, we talk about this, this like race to the top in our space. There's so much product flooding the market. That's more of that mid tier. And I fear for those guys because what differentiates you at that point? Whereas for us, I mean, high price per key, we're offering a lot of amenities, very unique design. We're always pushing the envelope on that front and we're paying for it. It's not cheap to build the kind of properties we build, but we have a pretty substantial competitive moat and we have that like wow factor that doesn't, it's not just like a flash in the pan where, oh, this new glamping property popped up and it's kind of just like all the other ones, right? Like we're, we're trying to push the envelope where people stop scrolling, right? What are the common mistakes that you're, when you think of your competitors or people trying to do what you do, what are the most common mistakes they make or missed opportunities? Skimping. Yeah. What I, what I talked about before, right? Trying to go like cheap out, I think on a lot of things I, I would highly recommend against that. I think it's penny wise, pound foolish. I think people can tell and, you know, you want to spend money on the things that people can like look, you know, look, touch. And they see on social media. Um, and I think sometimes like, you know, hire a professional designer, get a stager, get a good shooter. You know, like it's it's crazy to me, like spend money on on a shoot, right? On a lifestyle shoot, get models. So many of these guys, like they have, actually have a pretty cool product and they skimp out on that. And it's like a, it looks like a six or a seven out of 10 when in, in person, it's actually an eight out of 10, which can help you on reviews. Like you gotta, there's a balance between like overselling on social and underselling, you can outperform in reviews, but I still think you want to you want it to be like on level, right? You want it you want to be putting out to the world 
an accurate reflection of, of what your product is, but you don't want to undersell it either. So that's probably the biggest one. I think people skimping on marketing, you know, media and like interior finishes, design, furnishings, communal amenities, things like pools and hot tubs. That's what differentiates you. So what are some of the DIY hacks that you can't live without today? You know, we talked about the virtual staff, but what are some of the other ones, whether it's in business or personal? I mean, in both of my companies, probably the things thing that has like changed my life the most is really good hires. And the most important one for like my quality of life sanity and being able to focus on growth is this kind of like GM, exec ops, chief of staff type role. There's people call it a lot of different things. And the guy in in Stayawasi is is Tom, who is, you know, my GM chief of staff and he can run interference to deal with so many things so that I don't have to deal with them and handle, you know, 70, 75, 80% of what I otherwise might have to do. And I had a similar situation with Blink. I, the reason I did it was was preparing to get married. And uh, I was like, I, I know my wife's going to kill me if I have an emergency and my phone's blowing up on our wedding day. So I got to figure this out. And it ended up being like the best, you know, the best thing I ever did. I got way better at delegating, developing that manager and then and then my current GM. And then, yeah, bringing on Jesse as a partner who he can own entire verticals. You know, he owns our, he owns our social team. Like he's, he's the business owner of that. We sell it. Like I said, we sell the services to third parties. We manage our own properties and he's the business owner of that. You know, him and the team report to me and, you know, they got us from 18,000 to 50,000 followers. And first million view video. And he's really good at figuring stuff out. He doesn't have a social media background, but he's able to kind of get up the curve. And another strong skill set of his is on the pricing and revenue management side. I think he's the most sophisticated guy that I've ever talked to in the space when it comes to pricing and sort of revenue management more holistically. So yeah, that's a that's a big value add as well. So just just having people on the team that can own can fully own things and I don't feel like I have to micromanage or look over shoulders. I can do stuff like this. You know, I can I can go on a trip and make sense to meet you in person for podcast and line up four other meetings in Florida. Because by the way, after Southern California and Texas, Florida is the highest on our list of any market. And obviously, there's a lot of sub markets within Florida. But in terms of state, uh, we we want to do some stuff here. So it's no knock against California, but I've done two projects there with the biggest real estate investor, one of the biggest real estate investors in the world, and definitely the smartest hotel person. And I'm going to be staying away from California for a long time. It is tough. It's a challenge. In all aspects. Yeah, definitely easier if you buy, I don't know what you were doing over there. I, I know you had a one, one hotel there, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, we helped Starwood on a one hotel. Okay. Uh, two one hotels, actually. And spent years on one and very successful on another but you know it's a tough environment and knowing friends who own lots of hotels in california it's tough to get stuff off the ground particularly when you're constructing something that doesn't already exist yeah yeah oh yeah yeah no that so our palm springs place we bought a existing hotel and renovated it and yeah much more achievable we've looked at some stuff in idlewild Kind of like that market too for a boutique place. We've like, got a place called Idlewild in Florida. You can look oh, there. All right, cool. Yeah. Check that out closer. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you see the company in three years? So, Stayawasi 
you know, I want to be managing, I don't know, three years, but ultimately th- I want Stayawasi to be managing thousands of doors in this experiential hospitality product. And like you said, it's like REITs and all these, these, these owners, like who do they go to go for, for management of this new product type? We want Stayawasi and my management company to be that. And then ultimately, like we have this management company, there's a ton of value there because there aren't other management companies that can manage this asset class and type. But there's also value. Hey, could we package these thousands of doors and sell it to a, a big group? Get a good cap rate on it. Owners can opt in. So, I mean, that's certainly a strategy that I'm very interested in. And yeah, I mean, I want to build some incredible experiential hotel developments like the Tropical Treehouse Resort. And, you know, I got some other ones brewing, but but hopefully there'll be be at least a few in the works by then. Let's do one together. Be fun. I'm, I'm down. Let's do it. I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. That is, what's your favorite hotel? Don't pick one of Summit's hotels. <laughs> the deal's already done. Yeah, no. Favorite hotel? You know, I'm, I think I'm going to pick one relatively close to home. I really liked the Nomad in New York City when I was there. I was a big fan. Loved the design. I just love Flatiron in general. Restaurants, great. Bars, great. No um, longer exists, actually. Oh, yeah? It's called the Ned. Oh yeah, wow! I wow, I haven't, I haven't been to I haven't been to New York yeah. that long. That's so bad. I like South Congress Hotel a lot in Austin. Um, that's where me and my wife usually stay when we want to do a little staycation. Know the folks over there. Really like the vibe. You know their their pool reno that they did. I just love that whole South Congress area. I don't know if you spend time on there, but yeah, big fan. Great food, spacious rooms. We we often a couple of their suites are just like you know nine hundred square feet overlooking the pool. Nice design. We actually did my wife's birthday over there um, this year. So it was fun. We don't have to deal with the cleanup, right? So <laughs> it was good. Smart. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. This is awesome. And I cannot wait to see what you actually do in the next three years. I know it's going to be big and it's amazing what you're up to. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Happy to be on. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.